Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hi, everybody. Andy Rogers, MedTech Speed to Data, back here again uh, with another CEO of a startup company. We've got Will Malden from Rivana Medical. Will, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, Andy. Good to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you talk about your Acuro platform. So I watched, I did some homework before this episode, and you affectionately called it the, quote, stud finder for the spine. Uh, I know you're trying to simplify the technology and, and its use, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot to that. We'll definitely get into it. So, so Will, uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where, where did you come from? What's your ac- uh, academic background? And, and, and what was the, uh, the impetus to, to founding Rivana? Well, I guess going kind of way back, I was raised in North Carolina, a place called Hickory, North Carolina, to a kind of medical, medically oriented family. My dad's an ENT surgeon and uh, sister's a CRNA, kind of always had the interest in, in medicine generally. Then uh, went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergraduate, believing that I would be headed into kind of medical school and on that track. Mm-hmm. You know, I was also very kind of engineering, mathematics oriented, but I landed an early kind of like lab internship in uh, one of the ultrasound labs there in Katerina Gallippi's uh, lab specifically, and was able to get involved in some early kind of academic research and and found that I thought that that was very exciting and maybe more exciting than being in the hospital and seeing, you know, some of the same procedures over and over again. Very exciting after the first first uh, couple tonsillectomies that I watched of my father's um, observing, but after, you know, 10, 11, 12, it's like, you know, I like things that are um, kind of new and innovative and, and this uh, kind of research development area was, was more intriguing to me. And so I decided to pursue that path and that um, led me to University of Virginia and again, joined the um, uh, ultrasound labs there as a graduate student, received a PhD in biomedical engineering there in 2010. And I went to UVA because the faculty there had started companies. There were two ultrasound-based companies um, when, I, when I joined. And so I had my, my kind of eyes set on starting a venture of my own. I didn't know what that would be, but uh, just looking at, you know, is there some type of gap in medicine that I can identify where my background in ultrasound engineering and research and development can, um, you know, be paired with to create something really, you know, unique and invaluable. And so that led me to start Rivana Medical. And in Charlottesville, we say Rivana instead of Ravana, like a lot of people want to say. There's a, a like kind of local dialect thing here. Company started in Mont- in uh, Charlottesville and, and based here, so we gave it a local name. And uh, the kind of gap that we saw originally was really like this one particular um, indication for epidural spinal anesthesia placement, where the advancement of the needles are less precise than you would desire, especially with all the other kind of technology around the hospital to do things in a very precise manner, a uh, very data-driven manner. Um, these epidurals and spinals, if you go in and, um, observe them, you know, maybe in a, there's a spinal being placed in the OR, there's all this technology around There's surgeons and 
all these highly skilled medical professionals and the anesthesia provider comes in with a cart and a needle and they yeah. feel the back and, you know, they do their best and they're very skilled at what they do, but they don't have, in our opinion, adequate tools to really make sure that that needle placement is as, is as safe as it can be and uh, that the procedures is as efficient and, uh, and quick as it can be. So that, that's what led us to develop Acuro. Yeah. So Acura. Yeah. So uh, great, great background, Will. So question, you know, how many of these epidural procedures uh, are completed each year? And, and I remember, uh, so my wife works in the ER. I'm not in the clinic really much at all, but I remember when we, we have three kids and each time I'm like, you're doing what? And you're kind of, they're kind of winging it. You know, they put their finger up to the wind, see which way the wind's blowing. And you know, the, the anesthesiologist comes in at, at 3 AM and you're like, you're putting that in the spine and, and, and there's really, you know, no guidance. They're going in blind. So how many of these procedures are done annually? And, um, you know, what are the complication rates roughly? Okay. Yeah, roughly. So if, if you look at labor and delivery and the epidural rates there, you know, it's, it's of course, geographically dependent and in, in where you are, but, you know, somewhere between, let's say 50 and 80% of vaginal births are receiving epidurals for, for pain relief. And that, that puts the total number around 2 million per year. And then there's another roughly 1 million spinals and more commonly now was called a CSE or a combined spinal epidural for um, uh, cesarean deliveries. So it's a lot. It's a large volume of procedures. Yeah. Then you got a whole nother group of epidural spinal procedures in the OR um, to support usually lower limb type, uh, type surgeries or perioperative pain. So urological kind of surgeries or a lot of, a lot of spinals done for kind of joints, knee, knees, um, and, and kind of hips. Um, and then thoracic epidurals, which are higher up in the spine and a little bit more higher stakes there because you have the spinal cord that you're dealing with in the, in the lumbar spine for an epidural, they, they place it in the lumbar region because the spinal cord, you know, ends before generally before the lumbar vertebrae. But yeah. when you place these thoracic epidurals, again, it's much lower volume, but, uh, much harder, technically more difficult, but still perform blind. So, so let's talk more about your, your technology. So it's an ultrasound image guiding platform for these various procedures affecting millions of patients. So question for you. Uh, so ultrasound imaging has been around for a while. You know, can you talk about more about your, your enabling technology? Like what is, what is special about your ultrasonic probe compared to your standard, I don't know, GE handheld probe? Uh, what is the, what is the core technology there at, at Rivana? Okay, yeah, there is a a software and a hardware component to it, and you know strategically, what we're doing is is um, you know different than a traditional ultrasound manufacturer in that we are purposefully making these uh, design trade offs to optimize for this one uh, specific indication. And, and again, Acuro is our first kind of handheld stud finder for the spine, but we have some new products coming that I, I think the market will, will be seeing here. Um, one of them next year. And then the other, maybe in a, a few years where, um, this trend will be even kind of stronger. You'll see it more in, in terms of trading, making these design trade-offs to support specific clinical indications, um, in a superior way, but of course at the expense of maybe what, a console ultrasound systems trying to do for 
supporting all these general uh, imaging I indications gotcha. that you would want to do. So that kind of pushes us further away from the uh, competition of a um, console or handheld ultrasound. The core technology on the software side, um, imaging bone bony anatomy such as the spine is typically seen as the domain of x-ray. So you think of uh, like in the chronic pain setting, they're using fluoroscopy to guide these epidural steroid injections, for example, and they experience extremely high success rates due to that image guidance. But with ultrasound, it's been developed traditionally to really focus on soft tissue anatomy. And there's a different physics that's occurring when you image uh, soft tissue where there's diffuse scattering of the waves versus bone, where it's more of a specular reflector and there's an angu right. angular sensitivity component to it. So we've developed some core technology that we've, uh, the marketing brand behind it is um, Bone Enhance that we have a registered trademark around. And this is a signal separation technology uh, on the signal processing side where we're able to take um, multiple frequencies of interrogation of the anatomy and then separate out what's bone and what's soft tissue and then use that, those signals that are separated to rebuild a new composite image where the bone is far, uh, has far greater contrast in the image. So that's like one of the real underlying technologies behind the product. Got it. So, so it's more focused on bone imaging than your standard handheld ultrasound yeah. uh, probe and, and imager. That makes sense. And it's, I assume, like higher frequency and just more specialized software on the, on the backside. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's some usability trade-offs too that you make when you can, that you can make if you're really narrowly focused on optimizing for an indication and you look at our you know, stud finder for the spine product Acura that's on the market now. And it's a really unique form factor for an ultrasound system. The, the epidural space is small, for example. So, you know, that means we want a small footprint for the probe so that when you find the space, you can uh, indicate it physically on the patient. And then we've got the screen integrated into the probe handle so that the, the user's eyes don't need to be, you know, staring their hands are over here and they're looking up at a console over there. So everything's co-located and easier to use. And again, some of our newer products, there's even more kind of dramatic trade-offs really focused on optimizing for the specific Im imaging indication and the performance thereof, and also the usability. So just a high level question then on your market product market fit, was it just that, that the technology didn't exist? And you, you invented it with the, you know, your team at, at UVA, um, or was it just the market not big enough for somebody like, because if you think about imaging bones with ultrasound, right, you know, kids are getting x-rays and MRIs all over the place with, with, you know, broken bones and things like that. Um, why yeah. isn't this technology of imaging bones with ultrasound more widespread at this point? The markets are, are big. And yeah. to maybe take one step back, we have a commercial product, which is the stud finder for the spine Acuro. What's in development is a more advanced version of that to like improve that product market fit and really deliver a more whole product solution to the market. But millions of patients is really huge. It, the, just the acute pain side, you know, I just mentioned, you know, three to four million procedures. You know, there's also lumbar punctures that you mentioned and in, in, in yeah. chronic pain, it goes up to like 20 million. So huge markets. Um, then there's another market that 
we are developing a product for in partnership with BARDA. And uh, BARDA is a uh, agency under Department of Health and Human Services that funds medical countermeasure technologies. And this product uses our same underlying, you know, bone enhance technology to assess fractures at the bedside in the emergency department. So that's what you just kind of mentioned, right. that, that indication. Right. And that's another, you know, 10 to 20 million kind of incidents. One in every 14 patients coming into the ED have a suspected wrist or ankle, you know, fracture. So huge volumes. So why has it not kind of been um, right. addressed by maybe larger players in the field? I, I think in part because it's not, it's not an existing market. So there's a lot of mark. There is a lot of market risk there. It's a big market, but that doesn't mean there's no market risk. Um, there's risk in terms of uh, developing something new and ascertaining what what the market needs, and then actually bringing it to the market and understanding what the results are from a commercial perspective. And then also, I think there's a lot of focus. Or my impression, I'm not at these companies. You need to talk to them. But most of their focus, I believe, is on kind of better penetrating existing large uh, uh, markets and not creating new markets. That's, that's traditionally the, um, the role of, you know, Rivana Medicals and other smaller, more nimble, more focused companies that can sustain that focus over time to kind of break through and cross that chasm into majority market adoption for this new standard of care. That's typically our role. I imagine there's an element of like not wanting to cannibalize their own markets, you know, if you've invested a ton in x-ray or MR uh, imaging, I'm not saying that your technology is replacing MR, but, you know, like large instrumentation that's lower cost, maybe there's a cost element at play here that I don't fully appreciate, but I, I agree with you that you're disrupting or attempting to disrupt the standard of care for the benefit of the patients. Um, and you're willing to take that risk. I think that's right. And in both cases, the epidural indication, like spinal anesthesia indication and Bone fractures, um, there are um, kind of small populations of providers that will use ultrasound to scan a wrist and image a fracture and use that clinically to decide whether to go to x-ray or not. The, uh, and they'll use a traditional console, you know, ultrasound. What's precluding the rest of their colleagues from doing this is the learning curve aspect of ultrasound. So these are the top, you know, 1% ultrasound users that are highly, highly skilled and can take that general purpose system and, and apply it. And what we're trying to do with our technology, you know, I, I talked about the underlying bone enhance, but then there's an AI layer on there and a usability kind of trade off with novel probe designs to make it so that we get the expert ultrasound user performance with anyone because we're automating the image acquisition, for example, in the bone fracture case and then automatically detecting the, uh, the fracture presence with the AI that we're conceiving of in that product. We're jumping around a little bit, but you know, I definitely want to talk about AI. And um, Keytech does have some experience developing ultrasound-based products, and, and this was for mm -hmm. General Electric, actually. And uh, they were imaging organs and using AI to manipulate the probe to the right sort of orientation before administering the, the, it was actually a therapeutic application of ultrasound. So um, are you there or close to there where, you know, you can, I, I agree that there, there's uh, a specialty, there's an art to using ultrasound and, and imaging um, uh, using ultrasound, but are you close or, or aspiring to use AI where, you know, you can, you know, 
put your product on a belt or put the patient near the product and let sort of the image sort of guide itself to the right anatomy and, you know, you're kind of taking the human element out of it? Well, there's an interesting future that I think will occur. I don't know when, where kind of robotics has a say in this. But for now, the way we have approached that is that, again, we're not necessarily constrained to the typical ultrasound, you know, probe, the little wand that you have to move around everywhere. And that's where, you know, that AI makes sense to try and reduce the learning curve of the image acquisitions. So we're not necessarily constrained to that because we're not starting with a a system that's got to support general use of ultrasound imaging all around the body. And so we can do things like um, build larger field of view probes that are 3D acquiring. We have a special polyurethane material that can conform to irregular anatomies like the wrist or the ankle and acquire that full full volume. And then the AI's role is, is mostly around the automated automation of the anatomy identification and or the injury. And so that's kind of where we're focused in the neuraxial spinal epidural case. We're saying, you know, this is not the epidural space. Now you're on the epidural space. So that says that that's a little bit similar to kind of what you're kind of mentioning in the GE example. We're kind of saying maybe go lower or higher to get to that space. And then on the other side, we're the bone fractures. We're saying, yeah, that's a fracture. We don't think there's a fracture here. Yeah. That's sort of like surgeon assist, or it's not always a surgeon using the product. It's probably not a surgeon. It's more of a surgical tech or a nurse uh, or physician assistant in my wife's case, uh, using the product. Um, yeah, super interesting. Okay. So, uh, podcast here, uh, speed to data. So I want to, you know, rewind a little bit. Well, again, our audience is, you know, entrepreneurs that are starting new, new, um, sort of ventures at global companies. And then, um, you know, spinning out technology out of universities like like you did from UVA. So kind of an all-American story. I'm very excited to, to learn more about it. So let's go uh, early days at, uh, at Rivana. You know, you're uh, still eating ramen, uh, I presume, and, um, you know, living in the lab. Um, early on, you know, what, what data was most critical for you to uh, convince yourself to try to translate this technology into a product. Okay. You, you've formed an LLC or whatever entity at that time. And you know, what, what were you focused on those, those first, I don't know, six months, 12 months? Well, I'd say one, you know, one thing certainly was to make sure that there was some sort of need here. You you know, at that stage as a grad student, honestly, probably didn't take too much to, you know, take the risk. I was wanting to start a business. If I saw kind of any kind of need here. I didn't know what the solution necessarily was at the time, but, you know, I was very interested in, in trying to tackle some significant problem where, where it could have an impact. So there were um, qualitative market research interviews that we conducted essentially. Um, You know, I think maybe 10 kind of OB anesthesia providers. And um, the main outcome of that was that the problem there is a problem that they do struggle with, with, uh, with these epidural spinals. And that problem is most acute in obese patients, which makes total sense because you can't, you know, palpate the bones as well when there's obesity or, or if there's any kind of spinal abnormality, like a rotation or something. And then it's kind of like, well, is the problem left, right, up, down, or is it, 
how far, how deep do you go? Cause there's a whole class of like kind of new types of products that are trying to address the ladder, which is like automatically tell you when to stop with the needle. But it became pretty clear from those qualitative market research interviews early that the problem is just where do I place the needle to begin with in on what trajectory. And so this was really critical data to then, you know, the first, you know, when you're bootstrapping and you don't have many resources to work with, you're really trying to, I think, identify some problem of significance with some type of reasonable patient volume where there could be a, um, a valuable venture behind it. And then trying to get to some type of proof of concept, like develop a concept and then get to a prototype. And then this is what allows you to build some type of story for the company and go on to the next um, stage of funding. Yeah, no, that make, makes perfect sense. So how did you go about building that early prototype? I mean, were you handy enough where you and I assume your co-founder were, um, <laughs> you know, I, I read something about a toaster oven and an attic yeah. and a trailer hitch. Were you yeah. kind of just <laughs> begging, borrow and stealing yeah. to get this thing put together? Or how did you build your first prototype? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a while. But um, yeah, so we placed second in a business competition at UVA called the E-Cup. Got 10,000 bucks. And so that's what we used to, I, I guess, probably for the first, yeah, six months to a year to kind of move. I, I was still a grad student when we uh, started the business. So this was kind of like on the side type thing. And Kevin Owen was my uh, co-founder, very skilled um, engineer, came from industry and was in my lab as a grad student. And I knew he could build things some rare skills there in, in one person uh, being able to do hardware design, kind of firmware and software, just like put these yeah. integrated systems together. So, so we had to make ultrasound transducers and get it into a handheld device. And so, yeah, we kind of did some research on how to build these, bought the raw ceram pieces of ceramic with the leads on it, used a trailer hitch to over mold like a lens <laughs> to focus it and then got some like copper pipe and like backfilled it with some type of uh, like a, a metal epoxy uh, material. And then Kevin Owen built circuit boards using a toaster oven to, um, you know, flow the <laughs> solder and, and connect everything. And, you know, somehow we hobbled hodgepodge together this handheld prototype system uh, based on like the Android operating system, I think is what we yeah. used to just get some images to the screen from three little piston transducers that were in, and, and then, uh, growing up in North Carolina, we did a lot of, uh, deer hunting and such. And so there were spines at the ready and we built these. Um, so that's the deer spine kind of part of it. We got a deer spine, put it in some gelatin and that's, those were like the first images. And actually that deer images of the deer spine are in a academic publication <laughs> on the, on the topic. Uh, which is kind of funny. So I guess just <clears throat> stopping there for a second, putting my uh, global conglomerate hat on. So how you differentiate from, again, that like GE ultrasound probe um, is it sounds like it's mainly the, the software then, or was there something novel about your transducer design as well that, that enabled more accurate imaging of the bone and spine than, than other sort of approaches. Just help, help me understand the transducer and the algorithm. Yeah, okay, so there's two aspects. One, one is something we discovered early on around kind of off-axis reflections, which is 
a highly technical term, but the let's just say that the traditional probe is susceptible to off-axis reflections, okay. which create artifacts when you image bone. And um, we determined that this other type of transducer is not as susceptible to that, and it reduces artifacts. And so that's kind of the one we built. The one we built is very poor for like imaging blood vessels or doing these other things, but it's really good for like imaging some bones. And then the other thing we determined uh, was that if you can image the same bone from multiple angles, um, and the more dramatically different the angles, the better, then you really dramatically increase your angular sensitivity because it's a specular reflector. So angular sensitivity is generally poor. So you need to improve that somehow to, you know, cover the complex shape of a spine where you have some 90 degree surfaces and you've got some like, right. you know, more narrow uh, angled surfaces. And then lastly, not necessarily the physical transducer, but how you, how you transmit the ultrasound, we, we determined that at different frequencies, you get different kind of responses out of the, out of the bone and the shadow signal under the bone. Mm -hmm. And so we can like combine these, uh, frequency responses along with the novel, uh, kind of transducer designed to get rid of some artifacts and improve angular sensitivity, uh, to build, um, you know, very high quality images of bone. Sounds like you need mountains of data to uh, <laughs> to optimize yeah. this system, and uh, yeah, it's just it's crazy. Yeah, designing something where you know every anatomy is different, um, you have to sort of mm -hmm. anticipate and and adjust. Uh, so I, I I can anticipate I, I can appreciate the challenge that you're up against. So okay, so let's and and why it's such a novel sort of product, you know, because not everyone can uh, invest and know how to how to make that product work. So let's fast forward right. to today. Uh, many tens of millions of dollars later. Again, all American story. Congrats on the success there. Recently uh, received up to fifty or sixty million potentially from from Barda and, and also outside investors and things like that. So, and you're you're a larger team now. I guess you're how many people are at, at uh, Rivana now? Yeah, we're closing in on fifty fifty employees. So that's um, crazy. Still still a small business for sure, but. Um, it feels much different at adding around 50 employees from 15 for sure. And, um, yeah, it's exciting. We're, we're actively recruiting more, more staff as we speak. Yeah. So tell me that, tell me now then in 2023, what, what data is most critical for your venture? Uh, is it looking at sales and increasing sales of your, your first platform, which is by the way, a great sort of baseline revenue, uh, uh, to point to when you're talking to investors and trying to build this company? Like, what are you focused on now? Sales for sure, you know, and I think more importantly, developing relationships with uh, hospitals, like acquiring new customers that, and gaining their trust in, in the Rivana brand so that when we come to market with our, our latest innovations that, you know, we have kind of earned that trust from them and can uh, present our new, our new products and the value that it brings. So that's certainly one aspect and that's the commercial teams, you know, focus. The other like critical data is around charting out market development for the next products, like what studies are going to be significant and impactful, uh, what kind of endpoints would move society guidelines uh, to, you know, point to an image guided standard of care where it's currently, you know, that's not the position of the societies necessarily that that's best practice. So what, what, 
clinical evidence do we need to support in order to allow the societies to kind of make that determination? Well, hold on one second. What, what societies are you talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about like medical societies like like ASA, American Society of Anesthesiology, for example. They'll write, you know, guidelines around, um, in most relevant to us, their guidelines around uh, ultrasound guided uh, central line placement. You know, that's something that happened, I think, around a decade ago. But, you know, those were also performed blind for a really long time, like essentially forever until ultrasound technology got to a point where you could do this in real time and uh, studies came out, clinical evidence was generated to, to just show that this is much, much safer. And then, so once it gets to that point, then, you know, the members of the society rely on the society to provide these guidelines and what is best practice. And so that's kind of what the role is for that. Yeah. I hadn't heard that uh, angle or sort of marketing angle uh, over, you know, a year plus interviewing folks like you on sort of lobbying the society or getting getting the backing of a society to, you know, provide the confidence that your, your standard of care should be the standard of, or your, your, your product should be part of standard of care. Seems like the yeah. right strategy. Yeah, well, I like to think of it as, you know, kind of partnering with them and in um, making sure that in getting their thoughts around, you know, what is the endpoint? that is significant and matters and would um, be a benefit to your members. And in the case of neuraxial anesthesia, it's clearly safety, you know, showing an endpoint of uh, improvement in a, in a complication. I, I think you mentioned this earlier, earlier and I didn't necessarily answer it directly, but uh, postural puncture headaches are the, are the big one. These are cases where the epidural needle, which is meant to carry a catheter, punctures the dura in the spine. And there's a... Uh, CSF leakage out of the spinal canal creates a debilitating headache that is a big problem. So, you know, that's an example, kind of data point, but it comes about qualitatively through meeting and working with leaders in the field to to kind of understand what uh, study is to be done. Uh, it also helps to inform, of course, the product design in the same way. Now, will they uh, sponsor a study perhaps where you're like, hey, I have this product that's superior to uh, going in blind, um, would you yeah. be willing to sponsor a local study? Yeah. Well, you know, there's an, an investigator initiated studies, and I'm sure we, we will see some of those. There, there certainly have been a number of them uh, for our handheld device, Acura. I think the thing about that is that they tend to be smaller, like enrollment size, you know, in the kind of 100 to 200 patients. And for some of the indications, for some of these indications, some of the endpoints that you want to tackle, you just need like thousands of patients. And that's more traditionally industry kind of funded and sponsored. Okay, let's talk uh, real quick on, on back on data. So, you know, there was a mention of, of accuracy in one of one of the videos I saw of, of you. And, um, you know, what, what percent accuracy uh, are the procedures, you know, with, with your product today? Uh, meaning a successful uh, spinal intervention or, or what have you, and um, and and what what percent accuracy are you are you targeting in the future? I think it's really important to highlight this. Okay, yeah, yeah, it is. It is important, and it goes to product market fit and kind of value proposition for for products at different kind of price points and such. So the accuracy or the success rate, I, I need to say first of all, is highly dependent on patient population. So 
much lower accuracy mm. and more challenging patient True. anatomies because you're dealing with a blind procedure. Um, and then also uh, highly correlated to kind of patient volume. That's a big predictor on complication rate is just does the hospital perform a lot of epidurals or not many epidurals. And so it's kind of like a skill thing. But gen generally, when you look at the studies, you know, a first attempt epidural placement success in that challenging population might be around, you know, 40% or so. So okay. most of the time there's a failure. With our product that's on the market, Acuro, you bring it up to something like 75%. So you, it's quite significant, the improvement you can gain sure. by actually visualizing the anatomy, understanding the depth, understanding which level is uh, preferable and more accessible before you attempt the procedure. So there's a lot mm -hmm. to be gained there. You know, what the stud finder for the spine is not doing is it's not seeing the needle in real time. Uh, I mentioned the central line analogy earlier and how that became standard of care. Well, for central lines, you can see the needle into uh, the target anatomy under ultrasound. That actually, there was a kind of history behind that where you would scout with the ultrasound and kind of mark and then do it. And that's yeah. kind of what our current product does and what you would use normal conventional ultrasound to like scout. So like a scouting approach is what they say. Our next product, we're extremely excited about it because it will fulfill the the kind of role as the stud finder and locate the space. But then in a hands-free way, the user with two hands, because they need two hands to do this, can advance the needle and see it in real time and do this oh, all huge. with midline. Yeah, midline approach. So we're expecting kind of like uh, fluoroscopy-like success rates. And in in, in this is for the first time really providing a full complete solution from start to finish for the procedure. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's seems like the, the next best, uh, next step for your, for your product, right? You've got the imager yeah. guiding, right? And then, and now you, you have to just trust that that was the right kind of picture. Now you can see it real time or potentially see it real time. Makes, makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, um, you know, on the topic and theme of data, we would not have gotten to this solution and understood the problem and kind of the fit with the market without having many, many, you know, quantitative and qualitative data points from actually getting a product on the market, getting accurate on the, on the market and engaging with, you know, we're in several hundred hospitals right now that are using it and in, in, um, receiving value out of that device and technology. But from all the feedback that you kind of aggregate and from all the studies, you can start to build the picture behind and the vision for you know, what the next generation product is and what a whole product solution is for that market. All right, Will. So we're getting towards the, the lightning round section, the, the end of our, our episode. And so far, it's been super interesting. Uh, and, and again, congrats on your success to date. Um, and you're, you're off to the races, which is, which is fun to see. I'm a fan. But I just run this podcast, really. So I'm trying to get as many clicks as possible. So let's talk more sure. about AI. Um, okay. So... How are you just just how are you actually implementing AI? Is it is it basically building training sets from imaging, you know, deer spine or whatever, uh, and just building this library of what you might see, and then it's it's simply like you recognize this, and therefore I'm going to report, you know, th this finding. I mean. Is it is that AI <laughs> or like just just describe how you're you, you would answer this uh, answer the question how are you okay. using AI here? Yeah. Okay. So we have two kind of main uses of AI. 
in, in kind of different architectures for it, I'd say. They're all neural network based, of course. You know, tools to develop the network are becoming more accessible and a little bit commoditized. So the actual kind of AI neural network design is becoming easier to do. And what's hard and what's kind of specialized and valuable is the data that you own and then you collect over time with your systems. In ultrasound, typically you need to train your AI on your specific system because all the system, and that's, that's especially the case for, for us because we have very kind of unique probe designs, geometries and imaging frequencies, et cetera. And it does depend on the type of AI. If you're using like video output, then okay, that's less true what I just said. But if you're kind of trying to do it on more raw forms of the data, then then usually it's kind of training. You need to go out and collect data on your own system, spanning the target, you know, the, the population you expect to see. And then the type of neural network we're typically working with is like a segmentation. It's like a segmentation task that the network is performing. So where's the bone? Where's the muscle? Where's the spinal canal? Yeah, you got to manually annotate all the images, get a big training set, and then train the model. Then you get your algorithm, then you deploy it on the system, and then you go off and validate it, which is something we'll be needing to do for the first time uh, with the FDA and the it is a good thing that there's pretty clear guidelines here now mm-hmm. on how you need to get this validated and cleared. But uh, of course, the validation data cannot be used for training. And so that's where you see where your performance actually is and whether it's acceptable or not. Yeah. Got it. So uh, for our audience, just describe what you mean by the neural network. Is this you know some something that you're paying a fee for to get access to? Just Just help me understand that. My VP of engineering would give you a, a really great description of it. So I'm telling you how I think about it as CEO and mostly now on the business side, but it's essentially these tools that have been developed that have different uh, layers kind of already set up in the network. They're generally kind of already tuned for some some type of thing that you're trying to do, like image recognition type mm-hmm. network. And there's just kind of like a framework there. And at each layer in the network, there's a certain kind of usually like a convolutional step and then like a nonlinear step at some layers of the network that when you pass the training data through with the correct answer and the raw data and ask the network to, at the end of the day, you know, find the right answer, then it starts to change all these parameters within that framework, that network framework that's there. So these are tools that maybe... I don't know how long ago, but you used to have to kind of stand up that framework on your own uh, that you can go to different sources and they'll already have that in a more turnkey manner. And my VP of engineering would maybe cringe at how I just described <laughs> the neural network, but that's kind of how I how I conceptualize that. And I think the main point is that you can really have your internal folks mostly focused on collection of the data, annotation of the data, analyzing the performance of the network. Feeding the feeding the AI engine. Yeah. Instead of data. like exactly it's... how it's set up and the coding involved. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you can just upload a ton of images and and input it into and, and you define the framework for the AI algorithm. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Definitely worth um, learning more about that. So one other question for you in the lightning round. So we've been talking a lot about X-ray 
and replacing x-ray with with ultrasound imaging of, of bone um, what about ct uh, have you thought about how your product might replace ct images at all okay yeah that's a good question so um yeah we we have and i think there's a couple specific indications where that's possible and it makes sense one is bone marrow biopsy so very similar procedure you're you're biopsying the bone marrow usually for kind of hematology uh, type indications, cancer and such. And this is done at the bedside. It's a bedside procedure. It's um, a very large, it's called a, a trocar. It's like a really big needle that bores through there. And this fails a ton. It's a technically difficult procedure. And the backup is to go to CT because of bedside failure. Mm-hmm. And I think the bedside failure rates are, you know, 30% or, or, or more it certainly can be It's very expensive to do this under CT. The hospital loses money. It's not adequately reimbursed for the cost of that radiological suite to do a image, you know, CT guided procedure. And so this is an excellent role for some type of bedside imaging modality, like our system we're developing to actually image what you're trying to do and receive those kind of like x-ray like performance but at the bedside with a single provider. So th- this is one really good indication. There's one other um, on the uh, fracture side. There are these um, uh, displacements and fractures of a bone in the wrist called scaphoid. It's like one of the big bone, major bones in your wrist, mo- most commonly injured actual wrist bone. I, th- I think I broke mine in Colorado a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, so you know, you know. So um, X-ray actually does a pretty poor job of imaging that because it's a projection image modality and there's other things stacked on top of it. And CT is kind of like the definitive imaging modality to diagnose a scaphoid. And so this remains to be seen, but certainly some clinical evidence we're very interested in generating is related to how our 3D automated bone imaging system in the ED can avoid some of the limitations of a projection imaging modality to see the scaphoid fully and uh, avoid CT. So I think in those two, so they are kind of like niche applications. Um, I don't think, I don't see really ultrasound um, displacing x-ray totally, you know, for sure. But there are these certain indications that really make sense. And do it right there at the the bedside. I think that's the value. Yeah, exactly. Switching gears uh, again. So funding, any tips or pointers for raising money, particularly the big money you just got from BARDA. Um, you know, how did you acquire um, okay. that contract from BARDA? Yeah, so we have a contract with BARDA. It, it's a uh, multi-year contract and it's based on an, a need that they identified related to, you know, potential mass casualty events domestically. And uh, these low acuity fractures are very common if there's like a blast incidents, lots of fractures, everybody rushes into the ED and we're not going to put all these people through x-ray and have a radiologist review and it take five hours for everybody. You need to get them through quicker. So they identified the need. They essentially became aware of Rivana and our technology. And then that's how uh, we made a proposal and, and won a very sizable contract. It's, you know, upwards of 60 million. We're on a $30.5 million option one to that contract which should take us to through FDA, at least submission, and through some early clinical evidence. 
which is exciting. My big lesson here was, um, you know, I met the gentleman at, at, at BARDA and made him aware, made BARDA aware essentially of our technology and of our existence by accepting an invitation to an NIH forum where uh, different physicians and different technologists were presenting their technology related to emergency trauma care. And I almost did not go because a very busy entrepreneur, right? Million things to do. Like, I uh, think we had some big manufacturing issues we were trying to get through. And this was something that I almost didn't go to because it's a little bit outside. It wasn't anesthesia related. We weren't really in the trauma kind of field. Fortunately for me, I went. And I think the lesson there to me is like always accept these invitations because yeah. you just don't know. Go to as many things as you can. Engage with the outside world as much as you can. Because as an engineer, as a person starting a company, especially coming out of grad school, you definitely have a tendency to be very inwardly focused, but really you can't, you, you, you can't do that because you're trying to make a product for the world. So you need to go engage right. with the world and, and, uh, and do that. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a tough question as you were answering that it came to mind. Uh, so, you know, Keytech has experience uh, working with BARDA funded companies and um, you mentioned a, a need that BARDA had and you're, you're taking this product to market to get approved but, you know, I, the question is, is there a market need for, you know, what BARDA is asking for, you know, to build a yeah. sustainable business, right? I mean, you mentioned you have to, you know, become the standard of care. It'll be nice. You'll have an approved product, I assume, and some buyers like the government. But um, are you or are you trying to do both, right? Like develop the BARDA version and then maybe some, you know, some more closer to the, the, the clinical commercial version? Yeah. Well, you know, put yourself in Barta's shoes and you're putting up as much as $60 million to develop a new technology to address your need. Mm -hmm. And you spend that money and the product's cleared and the company's got it, can manufacture it, but no hospitals want to use it or buy it. And it's only useful in a mass casualty. And when the mass casualty comes, nobody knows how to use it because they never bought it and it's not deployed. So... The great credit of BARDA, they, they understand that the product needs to be integrated into routine care in order for it to actually act as a medical countermeasure in case something happens. And I so, see. so they, yeah, so we're, it. we're on option one of the contract and we made it through the base, what's called the base segment, go, no go. And really all that was about is, is answering, gathering data. We, we, um, interacted with 180 different end users or stakeholders which are emergency physicians, um, emergency department directors, orthopedist, radiologist, to uh, answer the question of, is there a market here for the indication of bone fracture bedside assessment in, in um, streamlining uh, patients through the ED, increasing throughput, et cetera? And fortunately, the answer was yes. Otherwise, you know, um, it is, I think, acceptable to find some other indication for the technology that is more market ready, market acceptance, and then knowing this other thing can be done with it in a mass casualty. Fortunately, those two things are really um, aligned. They're, they're, they're one and the same. You, you need to streamline these patients with low acuity fractures in routine care because there's 10 to 20 million of them a year, and they take a really long time and bog down EDs. That's been recognized. And then it's especially a, an acute issue in a mass casualty. Got it. Hey, you sound so modest about it. I mean, it must have been a life-changing moment for you to, to get 
to get that uh, award from BARDA. Um, are you looking for any other funding as well? Well, we're just closing a, um, a small investment round, small-ish investment round that uh, will be closed by the end of the year that will help better ensure the success of our uh, upcoming product launch for the new epidural guidance system and make sure to continue to mature the business overall um, to support the um, success of the Acura XV, which is the BARDA product. And if that's successful, then you know we need to be uh, prepared to manufacture and, and commercialize that product as well. So yeah, I'm actively kind of engaging with investment groups and, and you know, there's the, the government-based contract funding and then also the um, investor community. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, hey, we're, we're out of time today. So again, I wanna thank you for coming on uh, MedTech Speed to Data, great episode. And uh, again, congrats on, on all the success you've had uh, over the years there at uh, Rivana. Thanks, Andy, really, really uh, a pleasure. And um, thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. Until next time, everybody. Talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.